Institute for Gamer Review. I am DK. I am Lewis, and you're going to learn way too much about the Houthis today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I'm, I'm happy to, um, to be educated on this point, because I know basically fuck all about, quote-unquote, the Houthis, other than, um, well, yeah, just very little, generally. So why don't we, why don't we just get right into it, because I know you have a mountain of prep. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, the uh, like all stories in the Middle East, it starts in the year 632, um, which is the death of Muhammad. The Muhammad, you know, Muhammad Muhammad, if you will. And uh, it goes from there. So, but I, but, but I want to kind of lay out the case I'm going to be making here, um, which is both basically the, the, the broader case, and we're kind of, we'll wrap into the modern implications for this, obviously, throughout, but the case I'm going to make like, is that the Houthis, or as we're going to call them for this, because what you actually call them is controversial. Houthi is a guy, it's, an, it's the name of a guy. It's uh, He died in the 2000s. Um, he was martyred uh, in the fight over Yemen. And he kind of inspired like, his movement that his family and tribe took up, you know, bears his name. He was the, he was a big anti-American, uh, anti-American guy. Uh, Houthi was, and he created like what's like the motto, which is uh, if you've seen that Grey Zone video, it's um, it's very long. It's like you know, death to the U.S., death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, and a you know all these. It's 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 pretty like uh, it's it's very long, and it's like hits all the things. But uh, they're actually very, he's very, they were very politically concerned with like what they call the sacredness of the Jews. They're aware of the Jews in a very fundamental way um, that you actually don't see much, I think, in Islam. It's, well, they're just more like outspoken about it. The Muslims all know about like the Jews are sacred in the West and in, in the international scene. But like when they say, they really like, they're, it's a sincere religious movement. When they say a curse upon the Jews, they don't mean like, we're going to kill all the Jews. When they say death to Israel, death to America, they don't mean like, they mean like the states, right? And when they say a curse upon the Jews, he means like, these are, I want to curse these things to lower them from their current status. It's a sacred thing. Like they're actually not like genocidal maniacs. Um, now I wouldn't want to be Jewish in Yemen, but like it probably also wouldn't be that big a deal. Um, you're just, a, you know, any more so than being Jewish in other Muslim country, they don't have like some unique hatred of Jews they have a unique political take on them. And I'll get into that later. Um, but I really, I really want to kind of... You're saying they're not actually based? Or what are you saying? They're not, they're not like... They're not... Like, they are geopolitically way smarter than, like, people give them credit for. Like, they're not a... They are okay. a religious movement, yes, but they are not a, like... 
okay, in the same way, in the way you would consider ISIS like a very fundamentally religious thing, um, they are more of a political thing. I would put closer to the Taliban, right? And my big part okay. of thesis that I want this this whole thing is I think me kind of pushing is that the Houthis are in this same sense also very much independent of Iran. Uh, the Iranian government, the IRCG, the Republican Guard, or the Revolutionary Guard, they do not control the Houthis um, really at all. Um, they they support the Houthis out of a very like similar to Putin with like the defender of the faith. Iran sees himself as, as a defender of the Shia faith and they get support, but it's very much a support relationship. Obviously the Iranians have like geopolitical ambitions with supporting them, but the Houthis are very clear and the Iranians don't, aren't saying they, the Iranians are letting them kind of have a, have a very long leash between them getting pulled, support pulled. And it's the Houthis have implied that the Iranians didn't want them to do this. Like they're shutting down, shutting down shipping thing. Um, they did. They 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 like this wasn't a call they made. It was a call the Houthis made independently. They are not a proxy in the traditional sense. They are you. They are an ally. The the comparison I would make, and and I think it sounds like. I mean, this is already kind of in my mind, and it sounds. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I, I imagine this is bang on. Is between um, yeah, as you said, Putin and the and the uh, the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic militias, which the Western Zionist press loved at even from 2014 and and um and now through, through I mean, up until the outbreak of the war basically they would call them you know quote unquote russian backed um and and when politicians in washington and congress and so on would basically say oh these are just straight up basically they would not make the as far as the american political discourse was concerned there was basically the the, the people's republic militias were just an branch of the russian military which if for anyone following the conflict was ludicrous um yes. not only did the russian government just very much not want them to like they they were if anything they were a much uh stronger leash on the Absolutely. lpdr militias at the time than than the iranian government seems to be with respect to the houthis yeah. but in terms of the, uh, the relationship avoid, i think it's very yeah. similar yeah and to avoid like going into that because it's a very we'll get we'll get tied that's a mass topic to talk about I do recommend people read 85 Days in Slavonsk, which is uh, a kind of a account cum memoir of that event and uh, how a, a, a guy who's a fighter there who interviewed tons of fighters, um, including uh, Strelkov, who's actually now in prison for extremism in Russia uh, as of like three days ago was sentenced to four. Yeah, that's the, I mean, which I mean, he totally deserves. I, I, will, I will say like he, he kind of went off way off the reservation and was basically supporting Wagner's coup. So it's not that, I mean, you well, know, that, I, people want to make he, it about, he was saying like, we should be using nuclear, weapons. He, he meant him and his faction. Yeah, right. like, we should use nuclear yeah. weapons to cause a breakout, like in, and open these lines up, you know, whatever. Um, I right. recommend you reading 85 days in Slavonsk, uh, and about the, how the Russians were like deliberately like the Russians, like shutting down the border and like not letting troops or volunteers and arms through, for large periods of the conflict, actually, like very much trying to clamp down on those things. And Strokov, um, basically not having orders from the top or not having as much orders from the top as he implied to his people, um, about how much supply they would get and the issues that kind of caused. But, uh, I recommend reading Eight Days in Slavonsk. That's going to be a deep dive at some point we do just cause it's a great, we'll just book. do an episode on it at some point. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but 
and maybe we can maybe we can find someone who you know who was there. It would be cool to like to, yeah. to, to if we could do that legally. I don't know. We'll see. But um, in any case, yeah, just to draw the comparison between because the way that the way that the Zionist press and and Zog politicians talk about the Houthis is like Iran. They'll they'll, they'll always say Iran backed and and even sometimes I don't know if I've seen control. I've definitely seen controlled about the um, LPDR militias. I don't know that I've seen controlled thrown around as a word with the Houthis, but they certainly they make it sound as though um, they're just another arm of Iranian state power. And yes, that's uh, clearly not the case. Yes. All right. So to go into this, uh, you're going to see a lot of comparisons because they're like the Middle East and, and the Muslim world are, you know, a lot of similarities across like trends you can see. And I'll reference those as they come up. So the biggest thing that, that you have to uh, understand about the, this movement is that uh, it is a Shia movement. So, when uh, Muhammad dies in the in the six hundreds, there is this. Uh, I'm not going to get into the deep details of the uh, succession kind of conflict, but the 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 fact the there is theological differences now. There were less so back then, obviously, but the big deal was there was uh, the followers of uh, the people who said this guy Hussein should have made it should have become you know effectively emperor of the Muslims and taken Muhammad's spot. And then there were the other faction, um, which had, I believe it was an uncle or a, anyway, there was, there was like the heir designate who, who Muhammad wanted to follow him was in dispute. These groups became Sunni and Shia who like everyone kind of declares for both sides. They have a war and the Shia lose big and everyone behest internally convert or die. And a lot of very proud People's um, think the set like secession back in those days. The claims of secession to like king of anything, religious or not, was like like truth matter. Like as much as like there are political realities, the truth of the claim um, mattered more, right? To some to, to a lot of people. And even though the side that had a what I think is, I mean, obviously, in my in my estimation, looking at it like as a spur on like you know inheritance and the genealogy of kings and blah 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 blah. the shia probably had a better had a better claim um to the to saint did he dies he loses uh becomes like the big martyr of the shia and um all the all the people that declared for him obviously have to surrender and switch sides or uh you know die and most of the places just switch sides or died right but in certain regions of the Middle East that are um, like geographically hard to deal with. So Iran is probably the biggest one, right? It is contained. It is basically behind these mountains and uh, Persia is behind these mountains. It's unified. It could stand up and, and become basically always quasi independent or fully independent of like the greater Muslim well, it, empire of the time. It's also important to, yeah, it's also important to, I mean, understand Persians are not Arabs, and Persia that, as a political, as a polity, pre-exists, you know, the Arab conquest yes. under Islam so they, by they, so they were like, able to, more than a millennium. Looking at who who is Shia still is, um, generally with some exceptions, a geographical matter. So there are still like large Shia uh, areas. Iraq is probably the biggest one where there's. There actually is no geographical. There are still Shia there that kind of defy the this rule, and there are even some Shia in Saudi Arabia who 
defy this rule. So usually they make some kind of accommodation. They made like uh, they fought for a while and made some kind of accommodation where they would serve under, but like they were allowed to keep certain religious traditions, which was less of a big, also less of a big deal early on. Like if you just they would accept political control, but keep their religious thing. But because that was pre Wahhabism, which was this kind of Reformation or Salafism, which are these reformations in Sunni Islam that like are much more uh, aggressively sectarian aggressively you know demanding uh these people fall in line but the shia that never got conquered are usually either behind or in like mountain highlands that are very difficult to attack and the tribes that went shia in yemen uh are all in this on the western portion in this kind of northwestern highlands and they just beat they just won they like they they Every time someone came into their their mountains, they would just be defeated. Um, and this happens to every major uh, Islamic empire and polity that comes around. Um, the the initial all the initial caliphates simply can't project power into northwest Yemen, where the Houthi movement comes out of. It is not just one tribe, so I don't want to. It is a tribal group, but it is kind of a scattering of tribes for the purpose of what we're going to call them. I just want to call them the Yemeni Shia because that's kind of the best thing to call them. Um, and they are, they were some of the first to come over, not, well, not the first because those are the, the kind of Saudis, but the, some of the earliest adopters in terms of the whole Arab world or the whole Muslim world. And they did form a very aggressive and successful part of Muhammad's like jihad army in the initial expansion of Islam. And, you know, they're feared warriors. They were uh, they were an interesting mix at that point because they had uh, Yemen is on the west of uh, Saudi Arabia. And therefore, it was Yemen has had connections to like the greater Mediterranean uh, world through Egypt because it's actually on the way. It's on the way. It's very close to Egypt uh, by boat. It's on the west coast of the peninsula. And you see things like Roman coins and Athenian drachma in um in, and even, it's very funny, you see counterfeit Athenian drachma because uh, while the people in Yemen didn't know what an owl, Athenian drachma have a, it's a silver coin of a certain weight with like an owl on one side and I think some kind of, oh, I forget the exact crest on the opposite side, but people in the Mediterranean world who had never been to Athens, had never seen an owl, never been to Europe, just assumed this was, was just like what, what money was to a degree. Like this is, oh, good money. It's pure silver. means it has these owl markings on it. So you actually see both legitimate Athenian and Roman money in the port of uh, Aden. And like, you, it's not a counterfeit, it's real silver or gold or whatever, but like fake uh, Greek or Roman markings on these coins as like a, as a mark of, became like a mark of purity. Like this is actual legitimate metal of this, of this weight. Um, so Yemen is a, was a more, modern and civilized and culturally advanced than uh like the saudis and the and the arabs generally um they can sit and they for most of their history and still to this day they have a superior complex about this because um they view themselves as more like smarter than like like these bedouin arabs like these camel like these camel riding tribes um are you know weird hicks that kind of lucked into oil money and lucked into having muhammad but the kind of uh, more horseback warrior types who are a little more or 
urbane and civilized and they had a more of a warrior culture than the Arabs did pre-Muhammad. Um, and this, and this, this, you know, this became a, they had a, an elite core inside Muhammad's army. So they all fall back into their kind of hill areas and they defeat everybody um, who comes to kind of impose the Shia uh, kind of a, kind of a, basically they, they, it wants to like impose these kind of Shia death orders that periodically come down from these big Sunni empires. Um, they just get destroyed. Um, do you know what a foundry is for ships? Like where they, no, I don't actually. So a shipyard, well, it's in a ship part of the shipyard, but a foundry is where they, it's where they break ships. Like ships that reach the end of their lives are full of important metal or wood and all these parts that can be pulled down, pulled up, pulled apart and used for other ships or just building, like, good building materials because it's all like very weathered, tough wood. And the Ottomans uh, swept through and Yemen, this little hill part is north of all the towns. And these empires could generally control the cities on the west coast. Um, these same cities that are, being, that are launching these attacks now. And, but every time they would send a army into the hills, it would be destroyed. They called it a foundry for their army. It's like, like it's, it's, it's the most efficient way to destroy Ottoman armies was to just send them into these hills and they'd just be uh, rendered into parts. And the Ottomans really, so you see a picture of the Ottoman empire, you vast portions of the Ottoman empire are, were never fully controlled by the Ottoman empire. It's just like, there was no other, they, they could project power around it and it wasn't a threat to them. So they were like kind of okay with this. And if you, this is actually a pretty normal circumstance for empires. Like if you look at India or uh, even like African colonization, the uh, Max, Max Boot actually, who's a, who's a, you know, evil neocon wrote this very, he's also an academic, right? Wrote this book called the Savage Wars of Peace. It was a very good, actually it's a very good academic piece of writing. He was doing it in support of like American empire and eternal war. But he makes this case that having these like imperial holdings doesn't actually mean like they're integrated into the empire a la like, you know, Roman Gaul or, you know, Roman Hispania. It, it actually means you're fighting a s insurgency forever there. Like vast parts of uh, all, almost all empires have these basically constant insurgencies. And that's just part of an empire. He's making the case that, like, actually, the, the numbers relative to, you know, blah, 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 relative to the, um, you know, uh, British, you know, conquest of India and how many troops were, they were losing per year to maintain that. Uh, Iraq is actually very affordable. It's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, we're losing far fewer troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's actually not a big deal. We should accept this as normal, which is like horseshit because for a lot of reasons, but it is true. And that's how these old empires looked at it is like, you just have to send a certain amount of troops here to fight the locals forever to maintain the worthwhile parts of these countries, right? Um, and for most yeah, of the empires, like if you're not if you if you're not like pushing out, then someone's pushing in on you, right? Yes, and even if like if you look at a map, you know, there's like kind of here be here be dragons, here be Shia, you know, you just, those areas you got to send it. You can't let them. You have to like kind of suppress them or not let them build up or have a defenses in place. Um, you know, that's why old cities have walls just because in case these 
uh, people come down from the from the hills and try to do something, you can stop them. And most vampires could take over these cities pretty effectively. And these uh, they are they they are like notable cultural centers and stuff. But this this these these, these Shia tribes in the northwest just couldn't be moved and refused to be moved. And um, the after the Ottoman and and they are also but they are also part of like they also hate the Ottomans, right? So they do, and they are politically engaged. Like they have conflict. Like Yemen's Yemen's not that big. It's bigger than it looks on a map because of the way that maps compress around the equator. Yemen is a large country. It has 34 million people, but it's not that big. So they did have like cultural contact with the Shia, or sorry, the Sunni cities in the on the west coast. So they had like awareness of the world. They weren't like what you would think of as like the Pashtuns in Afghanistan who are purely isolated. Like there's like Pashtun history is like, there is no Pashtun history. Like, you know, it starts like as far back as your oldest, the oldest person in your village can remember. Right. Um, no contact with the outside. The, uh, the Shia movements had contact with the outside um, and culturally exchange and understood like they were fighting the Ottomans. You know, they understood they were fighting whoever, they were, whatever, whichever uh, Arab group or Arab, uh, kingdom wanted to assert control and they they consistently win they're they're really never really never conquered um one of the it's it's not unique actually these these things happen quite commonly but uh and they so they maintain their own like traditions and their own you know ethnic uh makeup it's very like there's no ethnographical change really in these towns and uh, cities, right? Oh, sorry, in these northern, in the town cities, there's like ethnographical change with Turkish and Saudi influence, the Sunni. But in the north, like they are pure Yemeni, Yemeni, very, very like, you know, like the ba- I would relate to actually closer to the Basques in Spain versus anything else. Like they have the common religion or common language in Arabic, but the religion is different. They have a very strong identity as something other than uh, you know whatever else around them is. And this never really changes, but who they're fighting changes and their internal ideology is very coherent in that they are sincere Shia Muslims. Um, they, they are a warrior people. They, they do, you know, what they do, uh, comparable to the, it's comparable to the Afghan, just please leave us alone ideology, but they have more cult, they, they, but they have a better understanding of who, who's, who they have a problem with. Um, and because of this, they do occasionally like, jump in with uh, foreign foreign backers. They, they, they understand it's a port, it's a port, it's a, it's a ports. They can they can be assisted by people who are trying to fuck up the empire they are part of, and they and they have a great understanding of this. So they were part of the Lor- famous Lawrence of Arabia, you know, rally the tribes to fight the Ottomans. They they jumped in on that um, as much as they could, obviously. More, more, more usually just localized raiding of the Ottomans, and unlike you know the the kind of big Bedouin pushes that Lanzar was managing, but they they understood that they understood somebody else attacking the Ottomans. We're going to jump in on that. We're going to request supplies from the British and and rifles and things. And they're also because of this, they're very, they're never technologically backward. They're always like kind of they have enough. They they're not I would say they are not like the Pashtuns like at all. They are they are able to assimilate this technology faster and better um, because they have access to it. 
uh, much more readily. And they are generally have access to even education. Like it's not unheard of. Obviously these guys have their own religious schools, but it's not unheard of to have this cross. Like, you know, you could go to a universe, like it's not a weird thing for one of these people because they're nominally part of the empire, right? Well, if you're wealthy, whatever, you go to some kind of university in the Arab world or just even in even in Sunni, more urbane Yemen. Um, so that they, they kind of, avo- they are poor and backwards, but their leadership is not. And even though they're uh, more fanatical than like, they're more religious, they're, they're not like, uh, they don't have that kind of taboo against non-religious uh, education that like the Pashtuns do in Afghanistan. Are you following me so far? Yes. Okay. They're also uh, like they they've had a king. They are a sheikh. They've had they have like a a monarchy system. Uh, this mostly this has kind of gone away now. It's uh, kind of kind of faded uh, as all monarchies do. But until relatively recently, there is a guy who is kind of nominally in charge of them. Um, and he's a kind of a, there's like a, there's like a head, for most of the there's like a, there's a king and a head, Im, head imam, kind of like the Russian empire style. Right. And these guys are generally kind of a, generally aligned. Um, and the head imam is, I believe there's the current things will all get, get, get thrown into like a blur in the 20th century. And there's no like pure successors anymore. But uh, so they, they have a, Basically, they have a national thing. They have a identity that's going on, and the biggest where the history begins in terms of geopolitics is they jump they jump on with the British do to do a thing of like oh well we're gonna liberate liberate the whole Middle East from the Ottomans. The British, of course, go back on this very famously. They the space all become protectorates, um, but this also means that the Gulf of Aden is becomes a big becomes a big deal. For the British, or not the Gulf, the, the port of Aden and all these Western ports become a big deal for international trade because of the Red Sea, because of the because of the uh, Sinai Peninsula, you know, or the Sinai, uh, uh, the what is it called? Kill the canal, Suez Canal, and this creates you know a very educated, very like British kind of educated British colonial thing going on. In Western Yemen, they have this. Of course, they have the same issues with the the Shia tribes in the north that have always happened. And the way the British decide to beat them is, well, the way the British like to do. They, they bring in like middlemen, minorities, and just like labor minorities. So they bring in blacks. They bring in uh, some pajits. They bring in. Uh, this is where you see, see like a uh, genetic damage more so. If you will, like not to, to use that for, to use that phrase of kind of breaking the ethnic thing, which really was what crystallizes the the Shia split and the Sunni split, because the Sunni are not pure, purely the same ethnic group they were throughout this whole period, and this northern Shia bit maintains damn near a hundred percent like ethnic and racial continuity over the the British and their like intentional. Uh, globalization of these Western ports. And the British are pretty content to just like fight, fight the savage wars of peace as Max would put it and just not deal with them too much in Yemen. 
And then uh, eventually the British Empire collapses. And that's when things get weird. Um, the British leave a kind of British parliamentary system type thing in control. Very quickly, the South, uh, This is and this is like post-World War II. So the South becomes, uh, you know, they, they want like a republic. They want uh, socialism. They all socialism was post World War II, like very much intertwined with with uh, nationalism in the Arab world in this post World War II period. In the same way, like so, pre World War II, it's liberalism. That's why you see Turkey becoming like a is it Turkey is a liberal modeled French thing. Yemen becomes a British modeled thing, but very quickly becomes a uh, like a a socialist uh, thing. They they break up. They they even break off eventually into like North and South Yemen, and the South of Yemen uh, is the only. Um, how how should you describe it? It is a. It is also not just South Yemen. It's South and East Yemen. East is the eastern part of Yemen is. It's, so it's the west. This makes it. It's, it's, it's the western kind of port city areas, the eastern like, just part basically Saudi Arabia just deserts. So there, it's like this. It's most. It's the majority of the country. Just the little, uh, Shia part is is North Yemen, and this South Yemen becomes in like not just socialists. They are actually because they're like urbane and British. They have a little less of this, uh, frankly, Islamic identity. Um, they're it's. It's actually very progressive for the time, in the sense they become a avowed, like communist country. They are the only country in the Middle East that goes into like action. You know, we are like the Soviet Union, like Albania, like China, like North Korea. We are a socialist country, uh, a communist country. It's they they are tried they attempt they have like welfare, they have better rights for women, they have, um, like you know, they're very much ahead of the the game. It's still a poor country. But they, you know, they're not, they're, they institute, like, you know, uh, I would comp- compare it to, um, it's compared to, like, obviously just East Germany, but poorer and Muslim. Um, that kind of, like, and they have actually developed very close ties with East Germany. The actual East German Stasi, um, like, these Stasi, like, the evil secret police, um, take, like, a personal interest in this country. To the point of, like, sending a permanent, uh, like, deployment of Stasi agents, uh, doing like counterintelligence and, you know, intelligence work. They have a secret to set up their own secret police for the for the uh, Yemen, Yemeni communists. These are the Sunni, southern and eastern, um, communists, and they use this in- intelligence net. They set up an intelligence network to run guns from because. I'm not going to be like, oh, the Stasi are based and red pilled, but they, the East Germans, uh, for reasons that are uh, maybe obvious and but more more based to us than the rest of the world, take a deep and profound interest in Palestine. Like they really want to assist the people in Palestine against Israel. Um, maybe it's some holdover from you know previous eras. Who knows? But they use Yemen as East Germans. This is not so obviously the Soviet Union backs them and all the. The whole, uh, you know, calm block is on their side, but the the East Germans take their interest and use the Yemen as their 
base of operations to run guns into uh, Palestine to the Palestinian people. Um, and so this is, and this is not this is this is not the Shia tribes. This is the rest of Yemen. The Stasi and the East and the Eastern are so they 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 go they don't go native, but they're they damn they go real close to it. Like they all speak the language. They are they are an important like political force in this country. The what happens to them is the wall came down, uh, and East Germany just didn't exist anymore, and they they stopped getting paid. At this point, they don't just go home. They appeal to the government to um, start paying. Like, hey, just we will become like the Yemeni Stasi of East German, you know, East Germany in exile, and keep doing what we're doing. Um, Yemen is a poor country. They also don't want the issues with that, and they decline to start like paying their salaries. So they eventually do just come home to East Germany. But that's how that's how serious and inbuilt this pro-Palestinian, pro-socialist network was in uh, South Yemen. And then eventually, post-war to, like, or post-Cold War, they eventually, there's a unification effort. But during the Cold War is when um, the, what will become the Houthis kind of really come into their own. Um, There was a, so they are hyper anti-communist, like, like so anti-communist, it's crazy. Because they are literally, like, they're a monarchy with an imam and the sheikh, and they want nothing to do. Like there becomes there's a bit of a, a, a really crystallizes that that enmity or that rivalry or whatever or the the separation. They are an ethnic monarchy. They do not like what's going on there. Um, North and South Yemen is, a, is an attempt to split that, but uh, the South Yemenis are always like on paper should be able to assume control, and uh, Nasser in Egypt, who is the he is not a he is a socialist kind of uh, you know pan Arabist guy right? You're familiar, everybody's familiar with Nasser. Um, if you're listening to the show, you probably are. He's the Egypt president of Egypt, or yeah, president slash you know dictator. And he is sees himself as like a kind of a Simon Bolivar figure in the way in like what Simon Bolivar was in South America, of like kicking off the yoke of what he viewed as both colonialism and uh, like reactionary, like he, they're, they're anti-monarchist. Nasser is not a monarchist. He's very against that kind of stuff, and he's also got the socialist leanings, even if he's not like a, a committed communist himself. It's it's fascism. I'm just gonna say it's fascism, but aligned with the Soviet bloc. Um, it, you know, bath, bath, it's bathism. It basically it's you know what a bathism, pan-Arab socialism. It's it's all it's all in this like slightly to the left on the in the Cold War, slightly aligned. And Nasser sees a true, uh, you know, this true communist state arising and says, we need to help them and they need to, like, unify Yemen. And Nasser sends all these troops to assist and, like, a significant, like, um, I want to say 25,000, like, a, 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 a large amount of Egyptian soldiers and modern military hardware to go attack the, uh, you know, the Shia and bring them into this communist thing, liberate, liberate the poor peasants um, from, you know, the reactionary tendencies of their rulers. And it goes just as well as you would expect in given the history. And this is where the, where this is where kind of the the point because they're not like a Iran shills. Iran at this point is both, is actually 
is the Shah. It's a American aligned, but it's not. You know that that change actually comes much later. The Iranian Revolution is relatively recent, and the Shah gives like nominal support to Nasser, but like not just like verbally, like oh yeah, it's probably a good idea to get rid of this crazy thing, but also doesn't because he's trying to play nice with the Americans. The Americans and the British start sending the Yem- the, the Shia Yemeni arms and weapons and smuggling them in through Saudi Arabia, through any number of places to get, to help them defeat uh, the, Egypt- the Egyptians and the communist Yemenis. So parallels are obvious, right? Like, oh, wow, the, the West backed this group of hardcore Islamists and now they've changed, like turned the guns around. Like, obviously this has happened many times before in uh, the history of the region. And of course they win. You actually see these glowing profiles of the poor oppressed North Yemenis in uh in like Western newspapers. Um they these they become heroes, the the atrocities, the gas attacks of the communists, uh which are actually more like it's very controversial if gassings ever did happen. They they had chemical weapons, how much they used them if they used them is kind of whatever. But as a propaganda thing, like the poor so- the, the blockade and the starving, the starving of the many people gets a lot, makes a lot of headlines in like the British media because of it being an ex-colony. The British send like, uh, I believe times reporters to go embed and write glowing profiles of the, uh, counter communist reactionary forces in, uh, North Yemen. Who are the, just to, just to make sure I get my, get, keep things clear. So these are the Houthis in other words. Yes. These, these are, become these, the are Houthis. The, these become the Houthis. Yes. Right. So the so the so they were like as much like Saddam Hussein, except in like I'm just I'm I'm laughing because like yeah so like there's the bot there's like the Egyptian essentially Baathists who are vilified because they're aligned with with the Soviet Union, but then there's the Amer- you know American backed Baathists in Iraq, which is Saddam, who were fighting against the Iranians uh, in the 80s, and and I guess we and and Iran. They were tech, they were not Iran aligned, is still right? under the they Shah. Essentially... Iran is under the Shah. I, it is a, it's under an American ally. Okay. It's a it's a British and American, American ally at the time. All right, right, okay, okay, right. But right, it is right, making, right, they also right. like it's progressive. Okay. They make noises because they they support like oh there's like women's rights and all this progressive stuff happening in, in the communist yeah yeah, yeah. communist Yemen. But like they also like right. Well, they, you see pictures. I mean they, that's what they say. This is what we they took from like the they're butt hurt about the the, the about the Iranian revolution because they'll they'll, they'll do the this is what they took from us about Iran with pictures of women walking around in like normal Western yeah. clothes um, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so a, a, another analogy that for you for guys, you understand like how reactionary and like not giving a, like, like they are aware of modernity, but like, but very much shutting it out. I would actually view it as very analogous to the Tibetan thing. Like the, the, the communist party and it's, Oh, know, I see. It yeah. into yeah. Tibet are extremely comparable to the communist South Yemen and its inroads into North Yemen or attempts, right? It's extre- like a very much out of step, but like the, Tibet- the Tibetans and the Pashtuns really didn't have a good, good sense of what was going on with like what the communists were, uh, what, the, what their potential allies could have been until at too late. The Yemeni were very well aware of the world and the, where to get allies and arms from. And they, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously they took heavy losses, but they 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 did they they defeated Nasser's modern army uh, on the ground. Um, what do you think? So, like the, the bombing campaigns come later, but there were fight you know fighter aircraft 
uh, with the Egyptian forces there, but uh, very much a, you know, still in the ground war period. So Yemen unifies after this, after the Cold War, with like kind of a peace sharing agreement. The communists give up being communists, really. It's just like, but the problem is it's still like a joint state and it's democracy, right? So because it's democracy, it's a democracy, the there are more votes in this in these big cities in the south than there is in these hill in these hill people. It's just just the way it is, right? So the north is constantly um you know marginalized and not given enough credit for, and there's still attempts to like modernize them. Um some of these attempts are not like necessarily bad per se. Um like Yemen outlaws slavery, right, officially. But in parts of these tribal areas that are like out kind of in the boonies, there still is like slavery practiced. Um, and like any campaign to get them to stop having slaves up there, even actually, so the Houthi movement is actually like, it's not like endorsed slavery. They also think slavery is bad, and, but like they don't, it's, it's a tribal, they don't have like a policeman in every village to make sure there's no slavery going on. Right. So attempts from like the unified Yemeni government to like go check up on the modernization modernization efforts are always going to be like viewed as very hostile. And the Yemeni government that is you know the elected post Cold War thing is very aligned with you know the rest of the world the you know, Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia America. Um, they don't see uh, you know they, they see themselves as like okay we're we're doing the thing in the 90s that all Arab countries are trying to modernize they're trying to be more progressive and this kind of drives the north you know it's, it's, it's they have grievances right and they're not being addressed because of the way democracy works right numbers of votes they can't they they can't build a, a system to like you know enforce their will uh, in the political sphere there is like m- you know moderate fighting at this point it doesn't really heat up until 9-11. So 9-11 is where the the U.S. gets involved and things get, like, pretty rough. Um, because of the, you know, okay, we're going to fight all Arabs everywhere and back up anyone who declares on our side, the kind of reactionary religious movement of the Shia, and because Iran is all Shia, is kind of grouped into hostile, the, what the America, Americans consider hostile needs to be destroyed. And this is because the Americans have basically declared for the Sunnis, unless they're Palestinian, the Amer- America is a, is, is back up for like s- the Sunni thing broadly. They, they, the, the sectarian thing, Iran is hostile to Israel and the Americans and the Arab and the uh, Saudi Arabians begin, uh, trying to erase this like low like low level kind of fighting is enough to come become oh now they're terrorists right now they're not just low level rebels in the Shia north in the mountains there they're like terrorists so this begins basically brutal political oppression which comes to a head under Houthi um, who kind of declares like actually no no we're we are we're a warrior movement um of course the the oversteps in fighting terrorism Yemen crystallize this whole region around him and his people and their religion, um, things have been kind of gotten away, got, got, gotten away from. Like the, there's not a distinct, I believe uh, there might be one who could not claiming it, but I, there's not a kind of head imam guy um, or a sheik anymore because of like the kind of modernizational modernization influence. But there is 
still this people, right? And they that that stuff is all in living memory, where they had a, a mom, a mama for them, and a sheep and a king for their own. And they said in this, so the counterterrorism efforts of the Americans and the Saudis, uh, backing up the Yemeni government, crystallized this into a a not quite a full civil civil war uh, at this point, but a you know revolutionary movement that is always growing. And in 06, the Yemeni government just takes out uh, Houthi, and Houthi dies. He, he's, a, he's murdered. And at this point, um, the war doesn't break out immediately afterwards, but from it, it's one of those things where it's like kind of fun. Like when does it become an insurgency to become a, a uniformed, regular army? I would say by, you can place it anywhere between like 08 and 2012, but at, eventually the Yemeni army is in the field fighting um, and gaining strength because the, uh, they're a war, they, they're a warrior people. Um, this is when the Iranians come in to back them up as like, because of, because of how America has aligned against the Shia broadly, uh, Iran sees its place as, okay, well we need to get the support. It's obviously very difficult for Iran to get support into them, which is also the reason why they, they can never really fully assert control is because of, just geographically, it's tough to get stuff to them if every country around them is hostile to you getting stuff in. And the ports are controlled by the uh, Sunni faction. But they get enough material. The the people in the mountains want to fight. Um, the As is often the case in Saudi or with like Saudi, like Saudi-type Arabs, they are not a warlike people. Um, they have gone soft. They have Pajit and uh, Negro admixture, um, which is never a good thing for war fighting. And they essentially uh, begin to basically lose lose the civil war. And a uh, Arab alliance comes in to like extend the like in a similar way to the Assad thing. Assad is going to win his civil war. The Arabs, the UAE actually has a real boner for them. I don't. Know, I actually, this is one thing that's hard. Why the UAE hates the Houthis so much is hard to judge, uh, but they really, really hate them um, massively. Like, they, so the UAE is actually one of the is gets they get a, it's like a it's related to been related to Canada and America, right? Where Saudi Arabia is America, and they have this country off that's off the side that's extremely similar, right? And because of like the Saudis and the Americans getting all the bad press and in international relations, the, the the reputation of the UAE in Canada is very good internationally. But they're always there with them, and often doing like wilder stuff sometimes. Like the 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 like you know just look at like okay like look at how they look at, like America like oh we holocausted six billion Native Americans whatever like Canada does did that shit too, but like no one really cares because America is doing it bigger and worse. And the UAE is very much a Saudi Arabia, but they're always n- never doing it quite as bad because they're a smaller country. And the UAE and Saudi money attacks Yemen with Ameri- American assistance, American hardware. Um, they're defending a ally against terrorism. And somehow, and it's there's a lot of reasons for it, um, but they just, they, do, they, they lose the war. They, ha- they send... Massive amounts of ground forces, Saudi tank divisions go in. 
the uh, RSF, who are currently fighting in Sudan against the army and winning, um, are basically hired by the UAE as like the entire this entire like army from Sudan comes to fight and gets their asses kicked. Like, um, it's actually we're never going to do a Sudan episode because like Sudan doesn't matter for anybody, but the these these guys get their asses beat in Yemen, but also we get like more so much experience getting their ass beat for years and like losing a ton of guys that when they go back to Sudan, they're actually like the most battle hardened troops in all of Africa, like black troops, and they are winning their civil war as a result, which is kind of funny. But I mean, we're seeing F I mean F sixteen airstrikes, uh, American intel, American special forces on the ground. Um, Al Qaeda is kind of around at this point. And Al Qaeda uh, isn't a thing in where the Houthis are in this north area, but they are in this eastern uh, area of that's more Saudi, and they also kind of end up fighting alongside again, like kind of playing, kind of playing both sides, but also being trying to be an independent thing. So the Americans have carte blanche to jump in with drone strikes and um, special forces stuff and contractor stuff, with the fig leaf of Al Qaeda being in this region. And the Houthis just win. Like, they take over. So this is where we get, we get to the weird stuff with the current situation, is the Houthis don't just defend their homeland again. They take all the Western cities, except for, I believe, one. Um, all the Sarna, Aden. Aden's the big... Uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. People in the comments will be mad, but I call it Aden because the British do. Uh, or Sanya. Oh, wait. The two big, the capital city and the biggest port city are under uh, Houthi control right now, I believe, and so are there a lot of ports. And they are uh, they are in charge of them, like militarily. They they are not uh, they are like call it imperialism, if you. Will. They are not uh, legitimate. There's they're not like elections in place. They just took these cities in this war. Um, so they're not uh, popular per se, right? But this gets back into the old thing with the Stasi and the East Germans and the communists. Those people there don't like the Houthis. They, pref- they would prefer to have their own kind of urbane Saudi Arabia, but poorer kind of thing going on. But they really hate Israel and the Jews. And the Houthi leadership sees this and understands this and is able to capitalize on this and prevent like them revolting or you know, the Saudis doing some chicanery and um, and also the Saudis blockade, do a, do a humanitarian blockade where, you know, there's a famine because of the war and, you know, I've got, we've gone into this a lot, a lot. The, there's a, you know, there's famine and there's starvation in the country and because these places are controlled by the Houthis, they are caught up in that and this alienates them from the Saudis and America, frankly. So this this comes into the current conflict where there is kind of a, not a peace deal, but like a a ceasefire between the East, which is the Al-Qaeda stuff, the old Yemeni government, and it's mostly worthless land, frankly. It's just like a Saudi kind of foothold. And the, um, the Houthis and like the Western cities that are not, you know, ethnically or religiously aligned with them, but hate Israel and are being victimized by the policies that target the Houthis. So this is why, another like smart geopolitical reason why the Houthis are jumping with both feet against the Israelis, because 
this allows them to make a strike, make a strong case for legitimacy because the old faggoty government, liberal Arab thing, the Sunni government is like, sees this and starts shelling for the Jews. Um, the legitimate quote unquote Yemeni government uh, asked the U S to Hey, if the U S if you guys want us to, to destroy the Houthis, give us, you know, weapons and airstrikes and support and we'll roll back west and destroy the Houthis. And of course, that's like, you know, destroys their legitimacy even further. Like they're uh, propped up by the Saudis and the UAE. They are, you know, they control, I think, one major city and um, a good bit of coastline in the south, but not the, not, there's some ports there, but not like, they're not as important as the Red Sea ports uh, historically. So the, this, this like forcing the, legitimate quote-unquote government to really sell out uh all of its internal legitimacy and exchange for external force is a very powerful thing that we like we may have guaranteed like the u.s may have guaranteed the, the the houthi control over these towns which is a historical the houthis do not generally control even like most of the areas they are striking from does that make sense like it's actually a historical aberration that the shia tribes have like all all this access to the water they should be like in the mountains hiding um like in the mountains yeah behind the yeah yeah so and of course this also because of the israel this lets them recruit from like populations they couldn't recruit from you can see actually some of the footage of the uh their supporters now um if you look at it they're not like uh pure Aryan yemens who are a little bit paler that you see like the darker uh you know Negro, other kind of more swarthier influence in the city, in the in the kind of city people, but they hate Israel because they've hated Israel since forever. And then the Stasi came in and helped them hate Israel even more effectively. And this, and now like the government risks because they're not like a democratic thing; they're not a liberal uh, project. It's a deeply like reactionary, um, in the truest sense, like religious movement, religious military government. They're not going to have elections, right? So you're going to, you're in a situation where this 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 thing probably would have they probably would have seen a revolt. Like if we if the US had just stayed out of it, right? Within 25 to 50 years, the cities would have kind of shaken off the Houthi uh, control. Probably like over time, just naturally, because it's hard for these cities to project power. But now they're all on board. They're even joining like the military to some degree. You start you start seeing as I as I've watched this stuff. Uh, even like occasionally a kinky-haired like uh, Arab, uh, black black admixture Arab in the Houthi ranks. Um, the straightness of the hair usually cause Arabs have very straight hair. Generally, when you start seeing kinky kind of hair, you, that's like the first sign for a Negro admixture. Um, people who certainly wouldn't be on their side are jumping on their side, and like may you may end up creating um, a little basically another little little Iran where Persia is a is the majority. And has a lot of the power, or or in Syria, the Alawites are a minority, but they have like the military power, and because of the greater political concerns, they have like the consent of the non, of their, like non non co ethnics have the consent to govern because of the geopolitical concerns and the religious concerns. With what the Israel thing does often, despite the best efforts of the U.S. and the South and the U.S. controlled gover- uh, governments. It is secondary to the Jew. The Jew and Palestine is a greater threat to the Muslim world 
than the Sunni Shia split uh, ever has been or will be. And uh, when 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 that when the Jew when the, when the Israel thing is very like at the forefront, Sunnis are willing to be bossed around by Shias or or other other ethnic groups in common cause because of you know that's like the the old the old history of Muhammad and the jihad is all these these different groups coming around and you'll see see uh, Saudis try to push this thing where Shia aren't real Muslims blah 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 that's like a big a big Saudi line and you see Saudi national so online saying they're not real Muslims that's because you will see that if you look at like um like a Hezbollah speech or a uh who the president of Iran is the Iran presidential speech or address on the war, they will be accused, even like they're accused, they're helping Hezbollah and Hamas. They are always being accused in the comments of these, of, oh, they're not real Muslims, they're Shia. Um, that is not very effective when you're launching rockets at Jews, right? Like that, that propaganda line has some validity to it for theological reasons um, that like, oh, actually we're a separate, we're a separate religion, but on the ground, it, it really doesn't. And it's more kind of for the benefit of like Saudi legitimacy that this tendency exists more so than it being a true tendency in the context of fighting like the, the state of Israel. And that gets us to where the, that gets us to why, so the Iranians don't want, did, didn't want this to happen. They didn't, they are very conservative minded. They, they don't want their equipment being used generally to, like, you know, interdict international shipping. They, they see that as like, you know, kind of a jump that they, they, they might have told them to take it at some point, but they want to control or want to have influence there that they don't actually have. And in that, that interview with um, Max Blumenthal, he's the, 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 uh, the spokesman of the Houthi movement is asked like, why are you, do the Iranians control you guys? Like the, you know, or how much, what is the relationship between you and Iran in terms of, uh, cooperation and the Yemeni answer is very telling where he says you deeply like this 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 statement deeply insults us right because and insults the entire Muslim world by saying the Arabs the, the Iranians are the only moral righteous people on earth who have could ever take issue with the horrible crimes of the Jew right so there he's asserting like that you know this is a you know to accuse us of being like told to do this by the Iranians as we would do this ourselves is a profound insult and then he says if we were Iranian backed, we would not be, we would not have started the blockade. Like the, he said, the, he basically says the Iranians didn't want him to do this, but we're doing it anyway. Um, for their own internal reasons, uh, because they hate the Jews, because they have these issues with the Jews, because the Saudis, like the, the, they have these issues with the Saudis, historically the Saudis are a Jewish ally. They see what they're doing as good for it's, it hits all the corners, right? It's, they're kind of more reactionary Muslim ideology is appeased. The anti, the, the it's good for unification with these people. They now control that they comfortably control right now because of how like built up the military is or who the, the armed factions are. But as you know, peace happens, they will probably lose control and they see this as a source of, you know, legitimacy. And also uh, they do like find the, what's happening in Israel horrifying. Uh, it's a it's a legitimate like horror at what they're seeing. So it it they have they have internal reasons to go further than the uh, Iranians want. Uh, and the 
Iranians, I think, have, of course, they back them. They're not, they're not, they're not cutting off shipping, cutting off aid for this. And I think you are seeing a turn where the Iranians are actually now now cool with it, because the Iranians who do control uh, Hezbollah in Iraq, pretty much more, much more so than they don't control all the Shia in Iraq, but the Hezbollah in Iraq is pretty pretty well run by the Iranians, uh, like to the point of like, actual officer, officers on the ground. Like there's not. There's probably there's some Iranians in Yemen, but there's not like Iranians in control in Yemen the way there are Iranians that are like liaising with the highest levels of Hezbollah in Iraq. And Hezbollah in Iraq has started firing missiles into Israel proper. Um, that it was a just a brief note in the news like uh, Ash it was Ashkelon I think got hit or attacked by missiles from Iraq, which is unusual, but that wouldn't have happened without sign off from the Iranians. So the Iranians are getting more comfortable with this proxy stuff. But initially, they were very conservative. They were surprised by October 7th. Um, and they are kind of, they are realigning to their allies more than they like. So in the way, like, obviously, like, Ukraine is controlled by the American government, 100%. Ukraine is a proxy for the United States. And, but you, Ukraine, what Ukraine does, you can't, Ukraine can't control how America reacts to them at all, right? The allies of Iran are in many ways dictating the Iranian reaction and the Iranians have with, after the terror attacks at the Esselani's tomb aligned far more with their uh, allies than they wanted to. The Iranians are very moderate, very conservative in their approach to these things. The faction that is in control is very religious. And like, once again, I, I said on, on, on Mike and Borzoi, they're very uh, like cautious and like also literally anti-war in many ways. Like they don't actually don't like violence. And the other faction is like the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps and the military who want to do these things and the who want to back Yemen harder, who want to do these things. And historically, you know, that the, the civilian government is in control, the religious civilian government, but they have now kind of said, okay, you know, this is the way things are. We're going to allow the military, allow our, you know, more directly controlled allies to also attack at the level Yemen is. Obviously, the Iraqi Hezbollah can't interdict merchant shipping because for geographical reasons, but they can do what the Yemenis were doing initially, which was just like direct rockets into Israel, right? And they're probably being intercepted. It's a very long flight path. It's pretty much child's play for the uh, Israeli uh, Air Force and Air Defense to knock these things out because they've followed such a long, predictable path. But it is, you know, good, right? It is, it, it is direct support and the Yemenis were doing that and then they said well that's not actually very effective let's destroy let's interdict all merchant shipping because that's a more that's more bang for your buck like that's what, that's what I said, the Yemenis are geopolitically very savvy they understand that like sending missiles at Israel and then getting shot down is like good and like for political reasons and it makes sense but they weren't actually like having like causing an effect now they are causing a very direct on the ground effect in Israel and internationally. And they can just simply, and they're willing to take like the, um, they've hit American air power, F 16s dropping bombs on them. Cruise missiles being dropped on them is something they can sustain. They, they've done, they've handled it before and they're ready to handle it again in a way that the, say the Iranians haven't, the Iranians have not been bombed by American hardware in their history. They, they still like, they see it more of an uh, unknown thing you don't want to venture off into. 
the Yemenis see that we fought the Americans and won um, because of, you know, the American, it was the Saudi Air Force, which is all American made, American trained, and American satellite and intel services, and American special forces and CIA fucking drone, like uh, predator drones. They've dealt with these things are all real to them. There's no unknown. There's no fear of the unknown for the uh, Houthi government or uh, Ansrallah, as they're called. I don't like calling them Ansrallah. That's what they pretty called, but the leader of Hezbollah is Nasrallah. So I, it's just to avoid. Um, I call them the Houthis just to avoid that, like, you know, confusion with very similar names. Um, but yes, so the, the, that, that, that's kind of, I think, the story of the Houthis and what they're doing and why. And their relationship with Iran, which is much more, uh, you know, it's, they are, Attention. they have yeah, more influence. It's more like, it's it's not a one-way thing. America's have this thing with, they obsessed with the way that the proxy conflict, because when America backs a country, uh, we generally control it. Like South Korea, South Vietnam, all the NATO countries, like all the, every country in NATO they don't do anything without the American sign-off, with maybe with the exception of France, which is like not it was in a weird spot with NATO, right? But like when America backs a country, America controls that fucking country, like to the to the to the all the way. Uh, non-American countries, because of like how they don't control international finance and like shipping, like the way America does in theory until recently, America can like fully assert itself. Other countries like. North Vietnam is was not a puppet of China or the Soviet Union. They 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 went it alone. They're still going it alone, right? Um, North Korea is more of a Chinese puppet than North Vietnam. What Vietnam now is Vietnam is, isn't at all. North Korea still has, but that's that's more a, a accent of geography than like policy. Um, American rival alliances are not rock solid in the way that. American control of, like, say, Germany is. Like, G- Germany is not a sovereign nation. Right? They, they do what the Americans tell them to do. Always. You know, and then the same thing, you know, and of course, because of that, Israel tells them what to do, right? <laughs> the other other country, countries aligned against America are able to, are allied, but they are not proxies. They are not unified in a, uh, you know, in these very, you know, hard, hard and fast ways, like, you know, Iran and Russia have issues. China and Russia have issues. They're all aligned in this kind of what I, what I and I hope there's, you know, for what I hope for, you know, destroying American imperialism and having a more peaceful and prosperous and coherent 20th century is that, or 22nd century, I guess, 21st, maybe, maybe gone, but that America has this, has this block and the rival block of Russia and China and Iran and their allies. You have like China as the production, you know, commercial engine, Russia as the kind of military technology engine and Iran as this ideological engine of this kind of axis where like, cause Iran, what Iran gives is like ideology, right. To this, to this partnership, like a, a truly anti-American ideology that Russia and China don't really have, but like can be kind of, kind of played into a bit for, in their own interests. And, Iran has that same influence over like uh, these other countries where they are like a, it's an ideology that people align with. They have to opt in, right? Because Iran can't assert control. Like Iran can't project power over any of their, even the Syrians or the uh, Hezbollah in Iraq. 
they can't directly assert control. So they have to like convince people. And sometimes when you convince people, they go harder than you want to go, right? Hamas, Hamas and the Houthis have gone far harder than Iran was ready for or even knew about. And that's uh, that's something that I think when you look at geopolitics, you have to realize about the anti-American blocks is they are they are independent actors. They are not proxy actors. Um, and I think I think that's a very important thing if you're trying to do an analysis that uh, you know you can't view them as like enemy NATO, right? And even 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 during the Cold War, I'm kind of going a little more further afield. The Warsaw Pact nations, Russia dictated terms to them, but after like the say midpoint of the Cold War, sixty put it after like mid sixties, um, as these countries have kind of rebuilt after World War II, and they began like they all began to assert themselves um, independent of Russia because they, they 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 the Russians didn't quite couldn't quite. Just can't control the No country can, can, can control its vassal countries the way America does. It's just impossible. There were actually jokes toward the end of the Cold War about the Poles and the uh, Bulgarians and the um, who was it? There was a there's a it's not famous anymore, but it was like a famous political cartoon of uh, all the heads of the uh, Warsaw Pact Western states talking about how we're going to need to roll, we're going to need to send the, send the tanks into Moscow to uh, keep the communists, keep the communists in charge. <laughs> it, was a, it was a joke, obviously, but like there was, they, they were, cause they were actually a more successful go of communists and the Russians were broadly uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but that's, 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 I think the, 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 the whole kind of case I want to make. And if you have any questions or um, that kind of, uh, you know, you have any kind of uh, questions or commentary on this? So how do you see this? How do you how do you see this playing out in the near term, or or, or do you think it's too? Um, uh, no, oh, if you want to, that's a good. I have some, I have some commentary on the tactics, the tactics of the yeah. movies. Um, I sure. think, I think the it is just too easy. Like the Americans and the Ukrainians, the, so look just to, to the Russians can't control. They can't really protect power navally or even threaten naval invasion of like Odessa and like Southwestern Ukraine, because in terms of how technology has gone, anti-ship missiles are too mobile and hard to hit. They, they're too concealable. They're too, you can't, it's, it's very difficult to do a opposed naval invasion these days because of the anti-ship missiles can be launched from land and, in a naval engagement, and the ship missiles are kind of a known quantity. But when you're attacking uh, on a land invasion, the the whole coastline is a ship, and the range of these missiles is so large that you can essentially destroy any kind of naval landing force. Um, and to kind of assert naval dominance over an area would be becomes so like cartoonishly costly in terms of naval naval. Like I really don't think like. You need to really level, like, and you really can't level because it was, you can see it's actually possible to actually level an area. You need to ensure such a like utter supremacy, naval and air and land over an area you don't have troops in to land troops in unopposed to like pull off a naval invasion 
against or a opposed, but not opposed, um, not opposed not on the enough, shoreline, you know, just, or, but just, but just like, yeah. and the ship missiles, yeah. an anti ship missile hitting a, like, uh, say a Marine Corps, uh, what is it? What they, LS, whatever, whatever the, I forget what the current, current thing is, but like the, the ship they're in before they deploy the smaller, the smaller boats would be like such a, you would lose battalions, right? Like you would use it, like the amount of, the amount of Marines you would lose if you don't have absolutely 100% perfect um, supremacy of this is, is immense. It's like, it's like defending the president. Like you have to, when you're doing the secret service, you have to control every angle they could possibly kill the president from, right? Because the bad guy only needs to get, gets lucky once, right? You need to get lucky in every single strike, perfect intelligence, perfect. And, and without people, people on the ground to prepare the way for you, it's just not really going to happen. And uh, you have to like, or you have to have like just total surprise that you just can't have when you're moving a invasion force via ship. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Um, so because of this, this calculus with how anti-ship missiles work and how mobile they are and how long range and lethal they are, I don't see a way you can surprise, like every convoy that, that passes the Gulf of Aden is effectively a naval invasion of Yemen. So they're on guard for it. They, I don't think like also like a uh, merchant merch shipping has to use like transponders. So like they literally can't hide. Um, and if they, and uh, there's, it's possible as where they write the Iranians, it's easier for the Iranians to send in Intel than it is for them to send in like, uh, you know, anything else. So like there's possible there's Russian, Chinese and Iranian satellites that would like in theory tip off the Houthis if they were trying to sneak these things past without transponders, you know, possibly not for sure, but Iranian, you know, how much intelligence the Iranians are able to gather from their allies is kind of always a question, but it's, it's almost impossible to fully suppress this kind of anti-ship missile based thing. Uh, even with the air, you can, they can destroy a good bit of them, but they're probably also, it's been speculated that, speculated that the reason we're not seeing what they call like gun cams or any, like when you do these strikes, you have footage of the area before you hit it, right? You can see the missile go in after the, the first day, there was some footage. The first strikes, the U.S. Navy and Army and Air Force released some footage of these strikes. They've stopped releasing footage of strikes, and I think it's it's probable that like because the strikes are likely they're likely hitting decoy stuff because you have to hit like it's embarrassing, right? I saw a people. photo of a of a decoy rig. Look, you could see how they would um, how especially any kind of aerial reconnaissance would be confused. Yeah, and yeah, and they it, were they, it, initially it, it was sort of just speculated but then it, you started seeing the actual decoys themselves it's like yeah america just got punked yeah um and but the thing is you have to attack you have to attack decoys you don't have a choice because like you know let's say you're 95 percent sure it's a decoy right and then it launches an anti-ship anti missile into your ship because it wasn't a decoy right so like it's 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 <laughs> you know like that's that's the, that's the yeah. problem with so say a decoy army like if you're doing the thing with like inflatable tanks yes you can ignore that right but like you can't ignore a decoy anti ship missile you you just can't yeah. yeah is what it is and uh, yeah so I I don't see a way that without some kind of ground force maybe it'll be the legitimate quote unquote government of Yemen getting backing from the Americans but. I don't see this stopping for any reason. And also just it's politically deeply unpopular um, because people like whenever like we strike Yemen, 
even with like good quote unquote reason, like, you know, there's a, in terms of the American empire's like ideology, normally they have to like, they have to like be hypocritical, but like the American ideology says very clearly, you have to be able to have like freedom of movement on the seas and the Yemenis, like America is acting in conjunction with its ideology. It's not being incoherent. So like it has like good cause. People just don't want to hear. Like, I don't want people, the people of America don't like these foreign wars. They don't like this stuff. And like you had, you know, two Navy SEALs did the, you know, dying and like trying to interdict some boat that was maybe going to Yemen with explosive, you know. Do you think that you believe that story? I mean, I guess it's possible, but I, I personally, I mean, I don't think, think, I don't think that, Oh, I mean, like, I don't think anything, I don't think they were killed by like Yemeni strikes at all. I think it's very possible. They were, they're checking Somalian fishing vessels that would like in theory run the blockade to Yemen full of hardware from Iran. Like, I, I I'm sure they're check. I'm sure they're interdicting those vessels, but you're talking about two trained divers with like GPS equipment that can't be found for a, like. I mean, I, obviously they have multiple. I, I just assumed, and then I saw on Twitter other. I mean, people at least claim, but it seemed like they know they were talking about. Uh, they have any 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 actual seal would have had multiple beacons on them when they fell in the water. So this idea that they couldn't find them for a week, I just don't buy it. Now that does that mean that they? I I, I, mean, I just I, I assume they were killed in Iraq during one of the missile strikes in in Iraq or or somewhere in Syria or somewhere we don't even know about. And this is just a cover story. I assume I could be wrong, but it's um, that it's possible. Like you know, it's it's hard to judge, but like waterborne operations are inherently extremely dangerous. Like on the I, so not waterborne. Ocean. And, and I get you know, the divers. Is, and, yeah, but it can. The ocean is super dangerous. I get that, but it it's the part about not being able to find them that I'm like, not nah, fuck off. Like that's just not true. I don't believe you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's it's the uh, they would have had multiple GPS and probably also you know some other. They would have had a bunch. I've of seen. Stuff that, I've seen other. T- I ha- I have seen this debate. I've seen other people say that the actual um like signaler stuff is uh. It has a very short, um, what do you call it? Like, so assuming you get your, it's possible they just didn't get their, so like, uh, whatever emergency flotation thing they had to like not sink immediately, um, had like, was never able to be used. Accidents happen and the ocean is dangerous. That, that part doesn't, it's, that doesn't set off my bullshit detectors necessarily. But I have heard this, the, the signal devices are not like, they're kind of a cope. Um, they don't like deep in the ocean there are like how long these things last and how strong they are is somewhat controversial um okay so yeah maybe. i people say like let's yeah. like, say that you have like you have uh only so like they i've seen i don't know it's, it's possible to know what they actually have right but i was gonna say that a lot of like s- the signal stuff doesn't actually have that long a lifespan like you have to find them within i think like as little as a half an hour before like you start losing that stuff it's not it stops working mm. in the conditions um i don't know how true this is also, like, we don't know what else was going on. Uh, like, um, if they were coming off a boat that was just, like, a boat that didn't have, like, helicopter assets or, like, a, a drone attached to it, like, it was just, like, a, a small ship interdicting a suspected pirate ship, they might not have had the air stuff to quickly deploy to get to them. I, we don't know enough, I think. But it's... I, I don't I don't see the reason to, like, deny it. It is kind of like a Three Stooges type kind of way to lose Navy SEALs. But uh, I, th- I think it's just like military operations are inherent. I, 
what we gain from the truth of that is not much, so I'm not too worried about it. I think it's just that running any kind of military operation is inherently dangerous and will incur a certain amount of deaths and injuries. And the U.S. public is not, we like, that will not accept these. Like the, the Navy SEAL thing is more acceptable, but like once sail, like the British just lost the fucking, was a destroyer out of this. You saw yeah. that, you saw that like I did with a giant hole in it. Uh, it was ran by another ship in his majesty's Navy. My, I, there, I think it was armchair warlord. I don't know if it was tongue in cheek or not, or maybe it was, no, it was defense politics. Asia uh, speculated that it might've been done on purpose by mariners who don't want any part <laughs> No, there's no way. <laughs> well, but I don't know I, which would be worse. You know what I mean? I would, like, bet, I, like the, I would bet the Royal Navy is so hard dick for any kind of like positive attention and like doing a thing correctly. Yeah, like a, you're probably yeah. right. But didn't they have what was it the the print the Prince of Wales? Their their like one supposedly functional aircraft carrier left port and had to turn back within seven, 24 hours, I think, because it actually wasn't seaworthy. Like, oops. So you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. These are, those are, that's also the problems that ca- countries with like one or two carriers have is that actually uh, carriers require so much, um, you know, downtime. Like the U.S. can only really deploy four at a time, like actively, and maybe push out two, maybe three more for an emergency. But some you just can't push out for emergency. And if you only have one carrier, emergencies happen when you're in that phase and you have to like, well, are you going to be, you gonna be the captain who said, I couldn't do it, right? I can't do it. I'm going to say no right. and end your <laughs> career. Or yeah. are you going to try, like, okay, well, I don't, like, against my recommendations, I'll follow orders, you know, leave a note of my disagreement, and then, oh, I was right, is a, you know, but, like, I, Classic, you yes. know, also, how much, like, you actually don't need a carrier in the in this part of, for these missions, that's why, I think, I think we've seen the carriers, is the carrier still there, or are they flexing it off? I saw, they may have flexed it back into the Mediterranean Sea. Because the mission is sure, yeah. I think this mission can be done by aircraft from uh, bases all over the Middle East, and the uh, most of it is done by like these actual Aegeus uh, missile systems on the just regular destroyers and cruisers and whatever that has a very. The Aegeus is a really good system. It can kill sat. It can kill satellites in orbit. Like it's very long range. Um, it's good enough for the mission. The problem is the. The uh, it can inter- inter- it can interdict as good or better than an aircraft. The problem is that the when these uh, ships run this gauntlet, the launch time, like the launch to impact time, is so short. So you know, you if you we saw recently the Americans tried to, Mar- Maersk tried to run it with two ships covered by a destroyer. The Houthis got off three missiles. Two were interdicted. And one landed short of the 100, I think 100 meters or short of a uh, one of the uh, civilian, uh, I guess, haulers. I don't know what the, I don't know what the classification of this vehicle was, but the, in this, it was enough for the for the, them to turn around and not 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 do it because while the, your interception tech stuff is great, you can't. Um, it you just like the, the the math involved, like your your detection to tracking to launching is such a tight window in this gauntlet. This gauntlet is way shorter than the maximum range of these missiles, right? These these anti ship missiles and drones have a pretty long maximum range, but they're 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 firing at much shorter than that. So the the engagement window you have to get all three hits or ten hits or twelve hits on 
what you're being hit with is really, really fucking tight. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just don't see how, maybe this is all of which it sounds like is to say that, um, I, I, how, like, there's no, there's no military solution here for the United States Navy. Um, that it, it's not, this is not a problem that the United States can solve with the application of military force. Pretty much, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, which is uh, which is the hell of a thing. You know, I mean, just, I, why this, Joe Biden <laughs> said that's like I, I, Joe Biden was he, he was being an old retard, but he was like saying he was right. They're like we're gonna keep doing it anyway because because American legitimacy rests on like free movement of the seas. You can't just let them do this. But like, I, I guarantee you, like some general told Biden, like, listen, we're not gonna be able to stop these. Like this is yeah, this is not we can we can, we can hurt them. We can impose costs. But short of a ground invasion uh, or a sponsored ground invasion by somebody else, it's just Which not is happening. Like who, right? I mean, well, the thing is, it's, it's it, Saudi. Like they, they, they fail. In, you know what I mean? Like in, they just they just did that for four yeah. years and got their asses kicked. Independent of the Israel thing, you probably would get some people making some offers to do it. Um, but no country is going to become like I'm declaring for Zog and invading <laughs> Yemen. You know. It's just yeah. like, like the 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 political concerns are. Turkey would do it for the right price, but how would they get there? No, they wouldn't. There's no way because Aragon has to do his like. Oh, the, that's what I'm saying. Like for the right yeah. price, like maybe, but you know, but with the Israel element in place, forget it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe maybe yeah, during peacetime, you could see something like that. But uh, it, I it's it's a uh, good. It's 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 just the way it is. Like uh, I hope. Well, this is just. I know, and, and, I have seen also on. I I do read the comments and I the problem with the TRS thing is that everyone who like comments is a paid sub and they like it this is a free show. So yeah. I have to seek out negative comments. <laughs> people <laughs> like oh it's a terrible show and they people have been see I just just see the people people send me stuff right like DMs like oh this person said your show sucks like okay whatever. Or um but I but cuz I do want negative feedback. Like <laughs> I I yeah. I I do I do kind of crave it. Um well, did you something we, that, we mentioned on the, or you mentioned yes. before you're going to set up an email? We do we have an email address we now do. for the show? Uh, okay, great. We have n i g r t a l k nigger talk. <laughs> uh, if you have any comments or at uh, proton.com, I assume. Or yeah, the, at proton.me, obviously. Okay. At proton.me, uh, I will. Yes. I will address. I will address your deep concerns or comments or just you know whatever. I do promise. One thing I always hate is when people read like negative comments in like a dismissive, like arrogant tone. I will just read your comment like a normal person. I'm not, a, I'm not <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm not going to like try to put you in a bad light. I, I do, I do, I do want people to disagree or have. Sometimes they have more insight. To yeah, or, this is a, um, you know, I, I agree. This is this is we're we're a highbrow show here, and we're not doing and and so yes, we're not going to just be dismissive in that in that kind of a way, for sure. Um, yeah, and we're I'm definitely interested to hear what people. I think our audience tends to be quite well educated and insightful. So yeah, um, but I have, speaking of negative comments, people are saying all TRS does these days is talk, is talk about the brown people, and like, yeah, it's there's something like that. Um, not gonna lie, there's a little element of that. I'm hoping we can knock out a good bit of a. Well, where are the white people who are like taking military actions against Jews? Show me the yeah. white people who are doing that, and I will praise them and talk about them. For right now, it's brown people who are doing that, so they should be praised and talked about. 
Yeah. Uh, but I do think we're we going to kind of, uh, you know, filled the still filled a certain void to some degree in terms of Yemen talk. There probably will be more stuff that happens, but whatever. Um, oh, this story is not over. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I guess the, my expectation for the, for the medium term is continued American airstrikes that continue to accomplish nothing, but at least they get to say they're doing something and shipping just continues rerouting around the horn of Africa. Um, yeah. that's, I wouldn't exactly say sustainable, but something that can be maintained in, uh, certainly through the presidential election. Yep, that's the other thing is that there's a presidential election. But like, um, that's probably why I think that's that's a non-zero part of why Hamas did their thing is that yeah. the U.S.'s hands are t- like Joe Biden could his hands are not tied, but they are they're under more constraint than they were at, you know in the first three years of his term. Now he really can't do unpopular things. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, that's not even just on. Unpo- yeah, I mean, he can't. He can hard. I mean, he he has um, overlapping crises. Of, well, not he. I mean, of course, he's just eating tapioca pudding in the basement. The 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 people running the White House day to day, the the Jewish cabal in charge of the executive branch, um, are are are, have, are facing multiple overlapping crises that are that are quite severe. We haven't talked much about the. Um, economic situation and and then uh, we, we talked somewhat on the third rail about the situation in texas which okay there's a lot of kayfabe and mostly is fake and gay but it's also a severe constitutional crisis in a technical legal way that is not that well, they, just solve, well, they also they also did just kind of solve it what do they do did, what do you mean did you see what happened the uh, breaking news i don't i'm not familiar oh no, it was yesterday it was yesterday but the uh, i guess we're we're doing texas content that's what people want right people always need more <laughs> texas content um the kayfabe seems to be over um the they have the supreme court said that the government has the right to, right to cut the barbed wire but they didn't say that like texas didn't texas have must, the right to put yes, it up yes Right, and also do other other things they were doing, like putting National Guard on the border. They didn't rule on that stuff yet, or if they even will. Um, but the razor wire thing was said. Oh, you know, you got to take it down. You got to do whatever X Y Z. The governor didn't cuck, and then the federal government has now said we're not going to take down the razor wire, which means that there's no dispute for the Supreme Court to intercede. Oh, okay. Like, I didn't know. I didn't see the federal government's response because last they I were, saw they are now going, yeah. Yeah, twenty-seven Republican governors or twenty-six out of twenty-seven governors or something like that were issuing statements in support of Abbott. Now, of course, these are statements in support of statements, none of which is. I mean, it's, again, yes, fake and gay. I but think, I think like three or four did send troops or like pledge. Yeah, troops. Florida did. I know send personnel. I my thing with that just real quick, um, and then I guess it sounds like we're wrapping up, which is which is good. But um, my my main thing is okay. But this is a major that okay. Let's let's assume that there. Well, first of all, that doesn't resolve the border crisis, and it's not going to. No, but, but yeah. But uh, even so, or uh, I think the main issue isn't even so much about the border. It's more about the internal stability of the American political system. And yes, okay. In this case, there was a kind of equilibrium um, that was was found after this upset, but it's still a very unstable like just just the fact that the the feds had to back off in this kind of very public way i mean this is a very public l which is why i think it's, this is why i think it's kayfabe it's like oh we're gonna take we're gonna understand the loss we yes. take 
Right. And like make well, Governor yeah. Abbott popular and, you know, I think. Uh, right. And it's not that Abbott, Abbott becomes, he becomes the heir apparent. He becomes the heir apparent to. Yes. To the presidency, so. right? Very much um, so. Which is, because, which is like, he's equal. He's just the mirror. He's a Texas. He's like, a, he's, he's Ron DeSantis with a cowboy hat, right? It's, it's not that he's any better. I know Lex. Have any, yeah, right. Yeah, I didn't know that, that they told me. I didn't realize he was in a in a wheelchair. But um the uh but the, I mean the thing is it's not so much about Abbott or whoever is governor or whoever's gonna be governor next. It's about in the minds of the people, like n- now like it's you know, people have a taste for the for the metaphorical blood of the, the federal government right i mean there, there, there's blood in the water now and people are not i think increasingly going to be you i've already seen a big shift from the way that like essentially normie conservative normie conservatives have become very increasingly edgy and uh, over the court and, and and edgy conservatives are very like there, there's a there's an increasing recognition of just exactly how the system really works on the on the part of um, formerly normie tier conservatives, mm-hmm. and and now seeing this whole situation unfold, politically minded conservatives are going. It, it's we're, I think are going to be more reachable than they had been at any point in the um, in the recent past. There's so that, but I also see that this is a a systems setting up a narrative of a kind of return to normalcy uh, after this end of Biden or Trump term, like. So in 2028, I think when you see like Gavin Newsom and Abbott running for president, that's like the system saying, oh, we got it all back under control, right? Like that's the kind of traditional two-party way is like you have the two most biggest governors from California and Texas run. They're kind of the proxies for both, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, like whatever, like uh, blocks or governance. And you have the Texas governor run against the California governor. And like this is every, everything's kind of back under control, uh, and I, maybe that, I think they're willing to give because Governor Abbott's not going like. I really don't anything, think he's, no. he's not going to really. No. Yeah, it's like uh, you know, and he's not no. going to have that Trump energy either. No matter, like doing this. Oh, I expect like, Newsom to win in twenty eight uh, as things stand. Yeah, that's a pretty. I, I would say that's the. I don't know about a safe bet, but certainly the probably yeah. I would give the the best odds on. Yeah. And people, this in, uh, you know, that kind of Amron Vidare take of like, well, if the Republicans will have to oppose immigration in order to win elections. I think Abbott will make new, like the same way they've always like, they will make uh, inroads like, oh yeah, that's what we're doing. We're stopping immigration so we get to, for the, to keep the country whiter to win the elections, blah, blah, blah. But they're actually not going to actually like do it. Like they may, the Republican position has become, we need to shift the tap from uh, you know the liberal, liberal Hispanics and whatever, but while still making, still making like, still cucking to them whenever they can, but they want to shift that tap to like the rest of the whole world. They want, they want everyone from Thailand to India to Pakistan to Africa. Like they, the Republican position is going to become like, quote unquote, high skilled immigrants from literally the whole world. Yeah. Um, for like economic reasons or whatever, and they're all conservative, right? Like. Um, you know, Pajits are going to be a conservative voting block, and uh, despite like <laughs> the base hating them, like like Nikki right. Nikki Haley and uh, what's her? Uh, what's funny is both Nikki Haley is a Pajit or half. She's full Pajit, 
And so is um, what's her name? But no, vice president. What's his name? What's her name? Oh, Kamala uh, Harris. Kamala Harris. She's also half Pajit, or is yes. half Pajit. So, and uh, I think both both. I think the Pajits are more like uh, Republican-aligned people. <laughs> you know, just the, the, the way they, the way they operate. Uh, very in the U.S. very in a very mercantile way. So I, I think there's going to be Republicans are going to like say, well, we need to import more Indians to destroy, also to destroy the negotiating power of what remains of every job over six figures. Like Pajits are going to drive those jobs back to where the you know the government the system doesn't want to pay people you know 150k plus to code. They want to pay. 65 to 85 to code and the pajits are a big part of making that making that shift happen and they are and will continue to be resented for it yeah um, so yeah that's uh uh well i mean again this is i i've sort of reached uh kind of um you know relax and enjoy the show at the restaurant at the end of the universe vibes of like you know cocktails as the sun explodes um, personally, I'm, 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 um, enjoying watching the collapse. Uh, I hope to live, to see the, the, you know, death of the American regime. Um, but it's coming whether, you know, I'm, we're alive for it or not. This is extreme. <laughs> this is all very extreme, like late Imperial decline stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think you know the thing you're just like waiting for waiting for an opportunity kind of thing. Uh, obviously, yeah, the NJP didn't pan out um, for a lot of reasons, and you know, but there will there will be other things. Uh, it becomes of like knowing kind of people in your area and just like you know waiting for the next thing you see as viable. Uh, you know, that's yeah. not. I want to wrap things up. Wrap things up, but like I have been uh, paid a lot of you know, dues to a lot of white nationalizations and a lot of, you know, organizing, whatever, um, spend a lot of money and time, but, and like, whenever I view a thing as possibly viable, I always kind of jumped in with both feet and I'm going to continue to do that. Currently, I don't say anything as viable, but like I'm I'm awaiting next viable thing. Right. And there are institutions that the institution has kind of assisted, helped spin up and are still existing. Your, your, your just report um the uh white papers kind of thing i think those are good those will continue, continue to be around which is great and uh you know i i am optimistic for the future uh as i always am uh and we'll see you know and if i find something viable i'll let you guys know you know <laughs> well i mean the the njp the the whatever pool parties thing that became the oh yeah also of, like all yes. those guys are still around yeah you know? that's saying yeah you, you should still get vetted because like the groups are still there and as someone who has been in now like kind of three of these dues paying national things you can um like the people you meet in your local area don't go away and i know more i have kind of more people that i would have through all these various orgs i've joined and have been burned by um so like it's a good investment in that sense like if i was purely online i wouldn't have the contacts I have in my real area, not just like on the internet. So absolutely. Um, it's always the time they like, just put it out and see who's around you. And, uh, you know, hopefully you kind of vibe with them and, uh, get along well and, and, uh, you'll have a group deal around you, you know, 
Uh, I know there's a ton of states have groups. I know a ton of states, or not a ton of states, I know a couple of states that don't have groups are kind of also in a, a neighboring state. Like they're kind of under them until leadership's up. So there's, there's no reason not to get vetted still. There's actually, there's actually fewer requirements now. You don't have to pay. It's, it's free. It's not, you don't have to pay money to the NJP. Um, if you have problems with your vetting, maybe if you have a good story, send it to the N-I-G-R-T-A-L-K, nigger talk, uh, proton, and maybe I'll sort you out uh, if I believe you. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think, I think we're good to, uh, Sounds good. Yes, that's for up. the last time. Nigger talk at proton.me. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and take care.